0: our study for the summer entitled The Book of the Twelve. Uh, As we're studying the prophet Joel, I want to encourage you to open up to the prophet Joel in the Old Testament. If you need to borrow or use one of our pew Bibles, you're going to find it on page 712. Uh, As you are flipping over to page 712 or making your way to to Joel, let me just kind of, uh, as a way of kind of priming you for it, some of you may remember um, the Y2K bug scare, right, several years ago. Uh, And you may recall some of your friends were maybe gripped by the certain kind of fear that we might be sent into some kind of impending future of doom that was more resembling the dark ages because apparently the computer programmers in the world forgot something by two digits. And uh, you know, there was a little bit of panic and some people uh, you know, sale of firearms went up. You know, uh, emergency preparedness kits, dehydrated foods. People were kind of collecting those, and it was a bit of a kind of crazy time. I don't think it was all bad. A friend of mine by the name of Carlos, who I had been sharing the gospel with, talking about Jesus for ten years. You know, sharing, you know, talking about the Bible, reasoning with him, and it didn't, didn't budge. But what 10 years of sharing the gospel with them and reasoning with them couldn't do, fear of the apocalypse did like overnight. Right? So Carlos, uh, in fear of what might happen because of that, put his faith in Christ when he thought that everything could go sideways, but Christ would be there. And so it wasn't all that bad. Disasters have a way of grabbing people's attention, don't they? You recall in the aftermath of 9-11, what was going on in America, there was a church attendance figures on a national average soared by 25% immediately following 9-11. Soon, though, like when things, people feel comfortable and feel a bit safe again, those attendance figures dropped before their 9-11 numbers. But disasters don't have to be global or even on a national scale to to stir our hearts to think about things that matter, they can just be really personal. I had two friends, two very good friends who um, at the time in varying states of being drunk and stoned uh, were terrified and absolutely gripped with fear reading about the wrath of God in the book of Revelation. And both of them told me that it was the, the message was loud and clear. It was turn or burn. And so they decided to do that very thing. One of them now is a pastor in the Hawaiian Islands. And the other, um, he produces those passion worship albums out in Tennessee. So it stands to reason that disaster and catastrophe is a useful tool in the hand of the Almighty. But we don't need things like Y2K or 9-11 or financial crises. We don't have to look very far to realize that truth. Just look in the pages of Scripture like the book of Joel this morning. Joel, you can see that disaster oftentimes breaks us of the kind of lethargy or the false security of our own lives. helps to put things in a perspective that maybe we've been lulled to for whatever reason might be. The book of Joel is a a book of disaster, of cataclysmic levels in multiple ways, nationally, economically, socially, and spiritually. But what I like about Joel, you remember from the introduction to the series of the minor prophets, there are only four occurrences where the people responded positively to the preaching of God's word, and Joel is one of them. And what's so great about this book, that it shows that even in the midst of a disaster, a disaster of our own making, even in the midst where God justly brings His judgment, the Lord is willing and able to reverse fortunes. The Lord is willing and able to restore what was lost. He's willing to renew His people when they return to Him. It's a very encouraging message, even though it, the veneer of it is just such, such darkness and gloom, but that is what our sin creates. Now, in order to get the, the message of Joel, we're going to look at it from three uh, unique perspectives. Uh, you'll see on the screen behind me the disaster, the design, the deliverance. And, and the disaster, what I mean by that is that's the what of what's going on in this book. What's the history? What's the circumstance? What's the situation? Uh, so that's what we'll talk about there. The, the design... Tells us the who and the why of the disaster. Now, if the first point is the historical facts, the second point kind of pulls the curtain back a little bit and lets us see the reality behind the events of this world or the events that we see in the book of Joel. And finally, the last point is the deliverance. As I said, Joel is a book of judgment. Well, actually, a lot of the minor prophets are about that. But more importantly, Joel is a book of salvation. And you're going to see a phrase, if you haven't been familiar with it already, it's the phrase, the day of the Lord. It's a very prominent phrase all through the scriptures, and we see it highlighted here in the book of Joel. So with that, let's jump into this short uh, three-chapter book, the prophecy of Joel. I want to read uh, verses 1 through 12 and then in verse 15 of chapter 1 to give you a sense of what's going on. The word of the Lord that came to Joel, the son of Pethuel, Hear this, you elders. Give ear, all inhabitants of the land. Has such a thing happened in your days or in the days of your fathers? Tell your children of it, and let your children tell their children, and their children to another generation. What the cutting locust left, the swarming locust has eaten. What the swarming locust left, the hopping locust has eaten. What the hopping locust left, the destroying locust has eaten. Awake, you drunkards, and, we- and weep and wail, you drinkers of wine, because of the sweet wine for it is cut off from your mouth. For a nation has come up against my land, powerful and beyond number. Its teeth are lion's teeth, and it has fangs of a lioness. Verse 7. It has laid waste to my vi- my vine and splintered my fig tree. It has stripped off their bark and thrown it down. Their branches are made white. Lament like a virgin wearing sackcloth for the bridegroom of her youth. The grain offering and the drink offering are cut off from the house of the Lord. The priests mourn the ministers of the Lord. The fields are destroyed. The ground mourns because the grain is destroyed. The wine dries up. The oil languishes. Be ashamed, O tillers of the soil. Wail, O vine dressers, for the wheat and the barley, because the harvest of the field has perished. The vine dries up, the fig tree languishes, pomegranate, palm, and apple. All the trees of the field are dried up, and gladness dries up from the children of man. Skip down to verse 15. Alas, for the day, for the day of the Lord is near, and as destruction from the Almighty, it comes. So what are we looking at here? What's this disaster? It's probably obvious from verse 4, that there is a natural disaster, the kind of which it's of, of monumental proportion. Joel says, has anything like this ever happened in your memory, in your father's memory? Can you remember something so devastating? This is something you'll have to tell to your children and your children's children and their children's children too. There was a locust plague that just completely decimated the the land. And you read all of chapter one, you can see how far reaching this was. There's, There's nothing but mourning and agony, nothing was left behind. The grapes, everything they would use in the offerings and their festivals to enjoy what the Lord has done, wiped out, complete agony. And for us, here in southern Orange County, it is really hard to imagine what a swarm of locusts would look like, let alone a plague of them. When I was studying Joel, I thought, well, have we ever experienced a swarm of anything? And we actually did. It was very different. It was, a, remember that swarm of monarch butterflies back in March? So <laughs> that was our swarm, right? I think that was a much more pleasant and beautiful swarm than what they experienced, but it was a swarm nonetheless. Now, what I want to do is, because we're not used to seeing this kind of thing, I'm going to put a video up here quickly, uh, in a little bit, and what it is, is a swarm of locusts. Now, the reason I'm telling you to take time to talk about it, some of you have seen videos like this, or National Geographic kind of videos, and they're usually of birds, and there's so many birds like flamingos, all you see is pink and it's beautiful. Right? And the reality is what you're going to be seeing is nothing but locusts. Swarms and swarms of locusts, so much so that you will actually think the thing's out of focus, but it's actually still in focus. There are just so many locusts, it looks like everything's blurry. Right? Now while I show you this clip, let me read you some research I got from the National Geographic website on desert locusts. So here we go. The desert locust is found in Africa, the Middle East, and Asia. Desert locusts inhabit some 60 countries and can cover one-fifth of the Earth's land surface. Locust plagues may threaten the economic livelihood of one-tenth of the world's population. A locust swarm can be 460 square miles in size and pack between 40 and 80 million locusts into less than half a square mile. Each locust can eat its weight in plants each day, so a swarm of such size would eat 423 million pounds of plants every day. Locust swarms can cover vast distances. In 1954, a swarm flew from the northwest of Africa to England. In 1988, another swarm made the lengthy trek from West Africa to the Caribbean islands. So a single swarm of locusts crossed the entire Pacific Ocean. Now here's the thing, friends, we, we see that and we go, oh, locust swarm, ooh, that's, that's just gross, right? I'm gonna make sure my windows are rolled up. I don't want that in my house kind of a thing. Or you look at that and you might be thinking, wow, that would like really jam up my pool filter. You know what I mean? That would really be inconvenient, right? Now for us, that's just like an environmental inconvenience. But for them, that was an economic nightmare. We have no way to to apprehend what that would do to those people. As an agrarian economy, to see a locust swarm come by would be tantamount to your house being decimated by termites. By your retirement savings and all your portfolios, your 401ks, your bank accounts being drained by hackers. This was no inconvenience. This was the death of their livelihood and their survival. And there was nothing they could do to stop it at all. But, but it gets worse, right? It gets worse than that. Not only did they have this locust plague coming down upon their land, this is a disaster that God himself had sent against his own people. If you're a note taker, write down Joel 2.25. God said, I, this army is my army. I sent the locusts. Now you might ask, why would God send a locust plague to decimate his people? Well, if you were here for our introduction, you might know the answer to that. It's because the people agreed to this. Remember Deuteronomy 28. The Lord says, you shall carry much seed into the field and, you'll, and you shall gather in little because the locusts shall consume it. Deuteronomy 28, you recall, is the chapter I mentioned that if you want to understand all the, 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 the promises of joy and victory and blessing and prosperity as well as the judgments of destruction and doom, that's the chapter. That was kind of the, the ratification of the covenant. And in Deuteronomy 28, remember right before they were going to go into the promised land, it's as if the Lord through Moses was saying, all right, one more time, are you all in to be God's people? Are you going to take his words, his words of life seriously and live by them or not? And they said, that's us, sign us up. And he says, all right, this will happen when you are obedient and the Lord will bless you like you can't imagine. But if you defy him, you disobey him, you spread the pollution of sin this is what's going to happen to you. And they said, we agree. In some way, this was God's kind mercy reminding them, friends, my, my children, I promised that this would happen. You may not be faithful, but I will be faithful. And so God sends this locust swarm because that was part of what they agreed to. But you know what makes this even worse? If you know your Bible, you may uh, f- sound the phrase "a plague of locusts" may sound familiar, right? Because a plague of locusts was one of the ten plagues that God brought to the land, the nation of Egypt, who oppressed His people. Exodus chapter ten, verses four through fifteen. God promised to bring a plague of locusts to decimate Egypt, so that Egypt would release the people of God. The irony is, the very same judgment God brought against the nation of Egypt, God's bringing to His own nation. It's as if God's saying, it's as if there's a hint of now, you are now the enemies of God because of your sin. Do you want to keep living this way? Because that's how the enemies of God live, and this is what God did to His enemies back in Exodus chapter 10. Is that really what you want? So not only is the plague of locusts a reminder of the covenant that they made in Deuteronomy 28, and then again at at Exodus 20, it's also hinting back to this is how God dealt with the people who oppose him. Do we really want to be those people? Well, if that wasn't bad enough, it actually gets even worse. (laughs) And here's how it gets worse. This disaster that was coming upon them was only a sign of the real disaster to come. Friends, what we read in chapter one, the decimation of their livelihood, total obliteration of every, the, the, the land completely. Did you notice it says, and joy has left the hearts of man. Everything is wiped out. That was only a sign of what really was gonna come. The real judgment is in chapter two. So let's look at that briefly. Chapter two, verses one through 11. Blow the trumpet in Zion, sound an alarm on my holy mountain. That's how they, they warned each other's blowing trumpets. Let all the inhabitants of the land tremble. Why? For the day of the Lord is coming. It is near. A day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness. Like blackness, there is spread upon the mountains a great and powerful people their like has never been before nor will be again after them through all the years of all generations fire devours before them and behind them a flame burns the land is like the garden of eden before them but behind them a desolate wilderness and nothing escapes them verse 4 their appearance is like the appearance of horses and like war horses they run as with the rumbling of chariots, they leap on the tops of the mountains like the crackling of a flame of fire, devouring the stubble like a powerful army drawn up for battle. Now you can see why the, 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 the plague of locusts was very vivid. It was a wonderful illustration of the kind of soldiers they were going to soon meet They were almost like locusts in their ferocity and ability to scale walls and and parapets and and get get to them. Verse 6, before them people are in anguish. All faces grow pale like warriors. They charge like soldiers. They scale the wall. They march each on his way. They do not swerve from their paths. They do not jostle one another. Each marches in his path. They burst through the weapons and are not halted. They leap upon the city. They run upon the walls. They climb into the houses. They enter through the windows like a thief. The earth quakes before them. The heavens tremble. The sun and the moon are darkened and the stars withdraw their shining. That, that, that could be a, a reference to just the amount of arrows and slings that are going to be thrown. So many that the cloud, the sun is, goes dark. There's no natural light because they'll be overwhelmed by the amount of arrows flying towards them. The Lord utters his voice before his army for his camp is exceedingly great. He who executes his word is powerful for the day of the Lord is great and very awesome. Who can endure it? Friends, as horrible as this plague of locusts was, it merely pointed to the real disaster that was coming. Now this unstoppable army that comes from the north, it possibly would have been the Babylonian army. That was the the, the second major world power after the Assyrians, the, the Babylonians overthrew the Assyrians and they became the world power. And then eventually the Babylonians were taken over by the Persians. Now, this is probably the Babylonians. We don't really know because Joel actually doesn't mention them. Through so this his whole prophecy, he never mentions who this storming army actually is. And that could be because God, uh, in response to their repentance, sent them away. We see that in chapter 2, verse 20. We'll read that in a little bit. But it's also interesting that unlike uh, the other prophets, Joel actually doesn't say really anything historical. Do you know it's like when we started Hosea, if you read any of the minor prophets, they start by saying, under the days of Jeroboam II, or Ahaz, or Hezekiah. Joel doesn't say that, so it's hard to date him um, Joel also mentions, does not mention a particular sin like Amos does or Malachi or Hosea. There's just kind of general hardness to the things of God, a general kind of apostasy of the heart. So Joel doesn't mention the kings. He doesn't mention particular sins. He doesn't even identify this human army that's ready to destroy them. As a matter of fact, Joel lists none of the specifics that we would normally look at. And I think part of the reason is just he wants the principle to come through In, in some sense, Joel is the response, if you look at the way the minor prophets are laid out in your Bible, after the the stinging hard words of Hosea, of heartache and betrayal and and adultery, and just God's heart completely broken, it's almost as if uh, Ezra uh, probably was the one that that, that assembled the, the form of the minor prophets, wanted to show on the heels of that what God's ideal is, because the people of God and Joel responded, they repented, they turned, they asked God to turn, they asked God for mercy, and God did that. So it's almost as if in the placement, after the stinging words of Hosea, Ezra, the scribe, wants to show this is what God wants from his people. This is the ideal response, and Joel's ideal for that because it's just this general idea of there's apostasy of our hearts, God is faithful to bring that judgment. His people respond and God shows mercy. And then the book closes with kind of this end times look at God judging all the nations. The, the principal idea that we see again in Joel that comes all through the 12 minor prophets is that God will judge sin. He judges it severely, even when it's in his own people. Actually, precisely because it's his own people, he will bring judgment because God wants a people to represent and reflect Him to the world. God is not a hypocrite. God is not two-faced. He's one. He's consistent, and He wants His people to reflect that well. And yet, God is always willing to show mercy and kindness and favor at the slightest return of His people, and we see that beautifully in Joel. So, this is the disaster they're facing. It, it, it's an economic natural, cri- national crisis. And like we have hear about the, the, the plagues that God is sending, did you catch in chapter 2, verse 11? Who, whose army is this that is now facing the, the Hebrew people? Chapter 2, verse 11, it says it's God's army. Like the plagues, this human plague, like the locust plague, this human plague about to, about to rain terror on them is God's. This is something that's hard for us to work with as 21st century Western Christians. This is a side of God that's hard for us to reconcile. Um, Eastern people, Jews, you read writings, of more ancient writings, they had no problem with God's wrath and judgment. We really struggle with that, don't we? I mean, it's very rare that you'll find a church. Um, you know, you go on, like, for one thing, what's the name of all our churches? Grace, right? You never heard of a wrath community, a wrath, wrath of God community church, right? You're just not, not going to find that. Because, and rightly so, we, we focus on God's grace, but we really struggle with, I mean, we even have phrases like fire and brimstone and we, we mock it, right? But we really have to wrestle that. Here we see God sending fire and brimstone. We see God judging. And so that's the second point we have to wrestle with is the design here. God's sovereignty here. And, and I want to read a couple of verses to you, so we're going to skip around in Joel. I'm going to call them out. But look at chapter 1, verse 15. It says, alas, for the day, the day of the Lord is near, and as destruction from the Almighty, it comes. Look at chapter 2, verse 11. The Lord utters his voice before his army for his camp is exceedingly great. He who executes his word is powerful, for the day of the Lord is great and very awesome. Who can endure it, right? Then we also see in verse 20, though, we also see God's wonderful power responding to our repentance. In verse 20 of chapter two, the Lord says, this, this, after describing this amazing army, he says, "'I will remove the northerner far from you, "'and I'll drive them into the parched and desolate land, his vanguard into the eastern sea, his rear guard into the western sea. The stench and foul smell of him will rise, for he has done great things. And the great does not mean good, like we would think of great. Great just means multiple, and they've done great things in that way. Uh, Then let's look at chapter 3, verses 1 and 2. For behold, in those days, at that time, when I restore the fortunes of Judah and Jerusalem, here's God's grace being extended to people who repent, I will gather all the nations, this is every nation, and bring them down to the valley of Jehoshaphat, and I will enter into judgment with them there on behalf of my people and my heritage, Israel. Skip down to verse 9. Proclaim, this is what the Lord is saying to the nations of the world, proclaim this among the nations, consecrate for war. Stir up the mighty men, let all the men of war draw near, let them come up. Beat your plowshares into swords and your pruning hooks into spears. Let the weak say, I am a warrior. Hasten and come, all you surrounding nations, and gather yourselves there. Bring down your warriors, O Lord. Let the nations stir themselves up and come to the valley of Jehoshaphat for there I will sit to judge all the surrounding nations. What he's describing is an event into the future time. We'll unpack this as we go. But as it's clear, every nation is coming against God at this point and God will judge the nations. Verse 13, this is a picture of just wrath. Put in the sickle. Uh, It's a a farming tool. For the harvest is ripe. Go in, tread, for the winepress is full. The vats overflow, for their evil is great. Multitudes, multitudes in the valley of decision, for the day of the Lord is near in the valley of decision. The sun and moon are darkened, and the stars withdraw their shining. The Lord roars from Zion and utters his voice from Jerusalem, and the heavens and the earth quake but the Lord is a refuge to his people, a stronghold to the people of Israel." Now you heard the expression three times, the day of the Lord. And this is a big theme in the Bible, which is why I want to take a moment to talk about it. It's a big theme in the major prophets or the the prophets, but also through the Bible. It's also referred to, if you've read the Bible and it says, that day in those days, uh, the day of God's wrath, the day of God's mercy, the day of judgment, the day of salvation, they're all referring to the same kind of thing. This day of the Lord, uh, it, it refers to, it can refer to a specific day, a moment an entire period of time. And the principal idea is that God intervenes into the affairs of men in a very significant manner. And it's either for judgment and destruction or mercy and deliverance. Sometimes it's both. And unlike the singular day, there are many days of the Lord where God does this. And they all point forward to that ultimate day of judgment and mercy. And if we read those, if we were to pick out, with the exception of one or two, Joel has five of these references. One of them clearly, and we'll look at that last, is one of blessing and mercy and deliverance. But if you are to look at the other four, it's clear that it's judgment and it's doom and it's gloom. And the reason I'm smiling is that it is because God is, is, is reckoning against evil. Friends, we can never talk about God's fierce wrath without recognizing it is against evil that he is showing his wrath. And you want a God like that, right? You want a God that can take care of business. You want a God that can make the atrocities, the oppressions, the injustice of this world called to account. You want a God that can deal with all those things. And so it is frightening. It is scary, right? It's kind of like when you were a child and you got spanked from your dad. There is a sense of, oh, this loving father of mine, I am really afraid. And we all know that look that your dad will give you. And it fills you with fear. And the reason I wanted to pitch it that way is I want the relational aspect felt because we really are very uncomfortable with this aspect of God, this ferocity of God. And a lot of times we'll do everything we can trying to get God off the hook as if he needs that and and try to explain away. But the reality is we want a God who gets angry at sin. And keep in mind, he doesn't get angry like you and I get angry, right? Our anger is always polluted by our own sin. God's anger is righteous and his wrath is clean and pure, We don't wanna confuse what love is with the concept of just being nice. I think a lot of people do that. If you've ever had to love someone who was involved in self-destructive patterns, you know what love must be. And a lot of times it doesn't look nice, does it? Right? If you've ever loved someone involved in some self-destructive lifestyle, love is tough, Love gets in the grill. Love does things that that person does not interpret as loving. We don't want to confuse love of God with the concept of being nice. And when you think about it, the alternative is not really better, right? If if, if God is not kind of, we're uncomfortable with God allowing these things, but what Joel's telling us, what the Bible often tells us, is God doesn't just allow these things, God sends them. Right? That, that's the part that we get really a little bit nervous about. But what is the alternative? Does disaster and suffering somehow slip past the hand of the Almighty? Does heartbreak get past him because he's not paying attention? Does tragedy fake him out because somehow he's too slow? What's the alternative if God is not sovereign over the affairs of our lives, even the ones we don't like, or even the ones we struggle to see his goodness? Are we really just victims of chance and impersonal fate? Is is that the option that we're willing to go to? If God is not behind this, am I willing to say I live in a universe where there are things that can happen that God had no control and he couldn't stop them? Do I want impersonal fate bringing difficulty into my life or the hand of a personal, loving God who will bring hardship even if it's good for me or because it's good for me? Do we have to settle for the false dilemma that we see so often that God is either good but not powerful enough to stop disaster or God is powerful enough to stop disaster, but He's not good enough to do so. Right? That's, what people, that's, what the, that's what people have to trade off. I want to believe that God is good. I want to hold on to that, and, but why does suffering happen? Well, maybe He's just not powerful enough. Maybe He's like my grandfather, really nice and kind, but He's lost His strength and that's why this happens. I'm not sure that's a satisfactory answer that you really want. I have a good God but he's really, at the, in the light of all evil and, and, and all that's going on, he's not strong enough. But what's the alternative? Okay, wait, he is strong enough. He can decimate evil and wickedness. He's just not good, and he let this happen to you. He wants this to happen to you because he's not good. You see the dichotomy there. And, and, and what people who get embittered and become lean towards nihilism, they'll take, okay, God's powerful. He's just not good. But what a lot of times we do in the church, we'll, we'll, we'll say, I want God to be good, and I'll give up his sovereignty. You see, friends, the Bible never does that. The Bible says, look, there's, 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 a, there's a third option that often is not considered, and that is that God is both powerful, all-powerful, and all good. The reality is sometimes we struggle with the way those definitions play out in our daily lives. That suffering, that tragedy plays a purpose in our lives far beyond anything we can perceive or understand, which is why God never, at the end of the day, asks us to understand him, but he asks us to trust him. And your children do that to you all the time, and what do you appeal to? Dad loves you. Trust me. Right? You could not possibly explain all the complexities and variables of life and your decision-making process sometimes to your kids. And so you resort to, Dad loves you. Can you trust Dad? Well, it's the same kind of thing we have with the Lord. Friends, we have to let our understanding of God be shaped not by what we want, not by what society is trying to understand God. We need to let God define himself because he does. And God is never afraid to show himself to be fierce. look at what he says in in Isaiah 45. And in Isaiah 40, these chapters, he says a lot of stuff similar to this. I just pulled one out that was very powerful. I am the Lord, and there's no other. I form the light. I create the darkness. I make well-being, and I create calamity. I am the Lord who does all these things. Wow. This is a powerful passage. We need to wrestle with a God that has no hangups but saying, I create light, I create darkness, I bring well-being, I bring calamity, I'm God. There is no other. What is the alternative? I don't, I, 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 there is no other alternative. Friends, I keep going back to John chapter six. You remember that wonderful chapter where Jesus says some mind-blowing, scandalous things to this his Jewish audience. You know, that, that one that we love about, I'm the bread of life, you know. Uh, I, my blood is, is the blood of the new covenant. What Jesus was saying is, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no part of me. And what did everyone do? They split, John said, and people turned and followed him no more. And then he looks to his disciples and says, will you leave too? And this moment where Peter... Just scandalized by what he's just heard as a good Jew. You don't eat any meat with the blood in it. And here's a man that's saying, eat his flesh and drink his blood. And Peter looks around and says, Lord, he doesn't say, I understand. I I see the complexities and the paradox that is you. Got it. He says, Lord, where am I going to (laughs) go? I have no idea what yours. I am as scandalized as everyone else right now. But I am convinced that you have the words of eternal life and where am I going to go? I love that Peter does not rest on, I understand the complexity things, I understand how this is. No, he rests on, I believe your word. And because of that, I will push through this thing I don't understand. Friends, in the face of suffering and difficulty, that's the only thing we can get back to. It's back to Joel on a personal level. What we should take away from our study of Joel, friends, is that if our hearts do tend to wander from him, if we tend to long for the things of the world more than the things of God, he will fight against us to bring us to repentance. I like that. What's that, what, is that what might that look like in your life? Well, that might look like God loving you enough to let your securities crumble. That might look like God loving you enough to let your hopes get dashed. That might look like God loving you enough to let your idols fail you, your desires frustrate you, and your plans fall apart because God wants 100% of you and he's not willing to share you with other gods, other goods, other goals. And he wants all of you because he made you. In uh, Mel's pastoral prayer, he quoted uh, Joel 2.12, return to me with all your heart. Friends, isn't it clear that what God is fighting for in his people and for us today is you. That's what God is fighting for. Not just Sunday morning you, not just prayer before bedtime and mealtime you, he's fighting to have all of you all the time. Just like he was fighting to have all of his people all of the time. And he brought disaster because they became apathetic. He ruined their hopes and dreams, the things that brought them comfort, to wake them from that, to realize that He Himself is their true comfort. So the question then is, as we turn to our final point, how is God going to do that? Well, we have one more thing to look at. Let's look at the Joel 2, 12, and 13. We've alluded to it briefly. Yet even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, and with mourning. In other words, a genuine turning back to God. We see that in verse 13. Rend your garments, uh, your hearts and not your garments. Uh, it was common for them to, to rip their clothes off to kind of show anguish, kind of like a Superman thing. But he says, look, I don't want you to do that with your clothes. I want your heart. Return to the Lord your God. Why? because he's gracious and merciful and he's slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, and he relents over disaster. And the people did, by the way, the people responded. They responded, they cried out to God, and now I want you to go to verse 25 to see God's words to repentance. I will restore to you the years that the swarming locust has eaten the hopper, the destroyer, the cutter, my great army, which I sent among you. You shall eat in plenty and be satisfied and praise the name of the Lord your God who has dealt wondrously with you. So what's going on? Friends, if you feel like, okay, I have blown it, the consequences of my sin are too great, that I've just, I've reaped too much, there's nothing, no good that can come from this. God's saying, look, I will restore everything that the locusts take from you. Whatever judgment I brought, I will restore it to you. Do you see the completeness there? All four different types of locusts, whatever they took, I'll bring it back. And the proof of that is verse 26. You shall eat in plenty, and you will be satisfied And then he says, and my people shall never again be put to shame. Verse 27, you shall know that I am in the midst of Israel and I am the Lord your God and there is none else and my people shall never again be put to shame. Two times he makes that refrain, my people will not be put to shame. Sin brings shame, friends. Sin always brings shame. We saw it in Genesis chapter 3, as soon as in Adam and Eve, when they sinned, their eyes were open, what's the first thing they did? They covered up because that's the impulse of shame. Don't see me. And God says, My people will never be shamed again. And let's, let's tie in our theology from last week. Why? Because God knows who we are and loves us still. He says, My people will never be in shame. And we see God talking about restoring joy and abundance, He's replacing the devastation with renewal. So how is he going to get our whole heart? We haven't answered that yet. How is he going to get our whole heart all the time? The answer is simple. He's just going to give you an entirely new one. Yeah. The way God figures out how do I get their whole heart the whole time, I give them a new heart. Friends, remember the minor prophets. What's their job? What's their primary job from two weeks ago is to call people back to covenant faithfulness. Well, in the midst of the covenants, We see a new one here. Jeremiah 31 says this, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, while I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. So he says, here's the solution. I'm actually going to write my law and put it within them and write it on their hearts. How's God going to do that? Ezekiel gives us the answer, Ezekiel 36. And I will give you a new heart. And I will give you a new spirit and put it within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. Friends, this is the amazing reality of regeneration. Friends, this is the amazing joy of becoming born again. God actually changes our hearts. Isn't that amazing when you think about it? Do you remember once when this was just the most boring book around that you could care less about it? And now this is the most fascinating thing out there. Being in church was like, oh, shoot me already, you know? But now you're like, this is the people I want to be with. I don't fit in at all. I don't, I'm not like them, but I want to be with them. What made that change, friends? It's inexplicable. Ezekiel 36 tells us, God said, I'm taking out that stone heart out of you, and I'm putting in a heart of flesh. And you won't be able to explain why now you love the things you found detestable. It's because I'm doing that work. Now, how do we tie this into Joel. We do that with one last Day of the Lord reference that we did not read yet. Let's look back at Joel chapter two, verse 28 to 32. And this should sound familiar to many of you. And it shall come to pass afterward, Joel writes, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Do you see the language of abundance there? I'll pour it out on all flesh. Your sons and daughters shall prophesy, your old men shall dream dreams, and your young men shall see visions, even on the male and female servants. In those days I will pour out my spirits, and I will show wonders in the heavens and on the earth, blood and fire and columns of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood. Before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. If you're a Christian, that that should sound very familiar. Because that is the exact verses that Peter the Apostle quotes. In Acts chapter 2, in trying to explain this crazy thing that's just taken place right there in Acts chapter 2. Flip over to Acts chapter 2, okay? Acts chapter 2, verses 16 to 21 is where we see Peter explaining this. What's happening is Jesus has just ascended into the heavens. And keep in mind, Jesus just died a few days earlier and the sun turned to darkness and there was much blood. The moon, there's, there's a lot of what Joel just wrote about, came to pass. Peter is seeing what's going on, the Spirit of God falls upon these Christians, and they burst forth proclaiming the wonderful works of God, Acts 2 tells us, and everyone's witnessing this and saying, they're drunk. And Peter says, these people are not drunk. What you're actually seeing is Joel 2 being fulfilled. Peter is connecting the dots that God is pouring out his Spirit. This is the day of the Lord, the timeless truth of Joel is that we can call upon the Lord and be saved regardless of our past sins or our apathy toward him. That whatever disaster we might face in life, we will never have to face the ultimate disaster of God's judgment because of our sin. Now, Joel 3, I'm going to have to tie these loose strains together. Joel 3 ends with a future vision of God's judgment upon the nations and his salvations to his people. Remember I talked about in the prophetic literature, sometimes they give prophecies that are very close, a couple years to be fulfilled. Sometimes they're mid and sometimes they're far out, but the earlier prophecies are so that the people know this is a true prophet. Joel's doing that and he's talking about what's going to happen possibly to the Babylonian army and then verse two, or chapter 2, verse 20, God gets rid of them because they responded in obedience and they say Joel's words are true, this guy is a prophet. Then in chapter 3, he talks about some historical activity but then starts talking about this massive judgment of the nations and salvation of God's people. So Joel ends with a vision of the future, but that time isn't yet. Between the day of Pentecost, which you could say is a day of the Lord in Acts chapter 2, where Joel 2 was fulfilled, between that time and where Joel 3 is fulfilled, in the end, friends, there stretches a long opportunity of gospel work and expansion for the kingdom, for the gospel to be spread And that task falls to us. That's just not Brent and Erica's job. That's just not Kyle and Krista's job. That's just not Liz and the Radius team's job. That's our job. What you might do for a living, might be an insurance salesperson, an attorney, a politician, that might be what you do for a living. But what your job is, is to make sure the gospel goes to the utter ends of the earth and to be a witness of that. Which is why that's been the job of God's people all the time. That's why God is always refining them to make them more like himself. That's what we're about. That's what Joel is reminding the people of God about. And thankfully, they responded beautifully. And God blessed them in a way that was just spectacular. As spectacular as the devastation that they'd experienced was as spectacular as the blessings they received. Sometimes we forget that. All right? Sometimes we forget that. We may have one time savored the supremacy of Christ and cherished God above all things, but sometimes our lives begin to revolve around the sun of our own desires and ambitions, right? We, we forget that our lives are not our own. We believe, and I'm with you, we believe the false hope of the visible, and we think that this life is what it's about. And Joel is a constant reminder that, no, that, that's not what this life's about. We were made for, not just Joel, the minor prophets are a reminder that we have a job to do, we have a mission to accomplish, we have a task to fulfill, and it is to make sure that the gospel goes out amongst the world, and that gospel starts with your own life. How are you living? Are your hopes and dreams tied to God's glory, or are they tied to your own? Are the things that consume you, the thoughts that that fuel you, the desires in your heart, Are they to see Christ magnified in people's lives or are they just news weather sports? Are you more interested in what's on Facebook than what's in the word? Are you more interested in listening to podcasts or the preaching of scripture, right? Joel's reminding us to return to the Lord and we will eat plenty and be satisfied. Next week, we're going to study the prophet Amos. Uh, It takes you 20 minutes to read it. I think you'll be encouraged. Some of the themes that Joel begins, believe it or not, Amos starts to pick up like God roaring like a lion, and that is amazing. So we'll study that next week. Let's pray and conclude our time. Father, we thank you for the prophet Joel and his words to us. Father, we thank you that we serve a God that is both powerful and good. Lord, and there are things you do that we do not understand. But Father, you don't call me to understand you. How can the finite truly understand the infinite? You call me to trust you. And Lord, though we may not know you fully, we know you truly. And help us to rest on that. Thank you for my brothers and sisters who long to be like Christ. Would you help us, not just as individuals, but as a corporate body, Pursue holiness and fight sin. And we'll thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening to this message from Christ Community Church of Laguna Hills. For more information and resources from Christ Community, visit us at www.ccclh.org.